1: Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies on iTunes via the web. I'm your host, Nick Cheesman, a research fellow at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific. Today, I'm talking with Shane Stradi, an assistant professor at Kent State University, about the lost territories. Thailand's History of National Humiliation, published in 2015 by the University of Hawaii Press. Shane, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. Could you begin by telling us how you got interested in the history and historiography of Thailand? Well, uh, it was a long journey
0: in a lot of ways. I grew up in uh, Alberta, Canada, and uh, was always interested in history, but my interest was really in France not in Thailand, and uh, I took uh, studied six years of French in school. I loved uh, the Montreal canadians my favorite hockey team, growing up, and I loved everything Quebecois and about Montreal, and um, thought that that would probably be my field. When I finished high school, I applied to become a missionary for my church, and I was assigned not to France as I had hoped, but to uh, a mission in Thailand in Bangkok. And uh, I didn't know anything about Thailand. A couple of years living and working there, I, I learned about the culture, I learned the language, and I developed uh, an intense affection for that country and, and people, as you can probably imagine. I didn't learn anything about Thai history while I was there originally, except that Thais were very proud of never having been colonized and felt that this made them unique among their uh, Southeast Asian neighbors. When I returned to school and began my graduate studies, I, uh, <laughs> I hit on the on Franco-Thai border co- uh, conflict as a way of combining those two interests of mine, France and Thailand. And I, I wish it were more profound than that, but, but it was actually really that simple. And um, as I began studying and, and studied the propaganda that the Thai put out during that conflict, I noticed it had an incredibly anti-imperialist tone, and I thought how odd this is that uh, a country that was uh, independent, that had never been colonized, that considered itself in some ways an equal of the West, should be constantly referencing all of these injuries, all of these grievances that that they had suffered uh, in the past, most importantly, the lost territories issue. And it was right around that point that I read Siam Mat by Tong Chai And And uh, that not only piqued my interest in uh, nationalism and in discourse, but also it completely widened the parameters of what history could be. And uh, that history of representation changed everything about my approach to thinking and writing about history it led me to Wisconsin to work with Tung Chai and uh, into the project that became this book.
1: So perhaps before we go to the narratives that you're referring to of grievance and of loss, you could tell us briefly uh, what are these or what were these lost territories to which the book's title alludes? Could you set out some basic details of them to whom they were allegedly lost in given us some indication already, and when? Well,
0: uh, the, the concept of the lost tor- territories are a little bit ahistorical uh, in the sense that they're imagined and crafted after the fact, of course, but <clears throat> it stems from an event that happens during the age of high imperialism, really in the 1890s, when the British are pressing in on the Kingdom of Siam from the west the French, of course, are the real threat coming from Indochina in the east. And the Siamese are uh, really competing with those two European powers to lay claim to the, what they refer to as the left bank of the Mekong or the Lao states, which had nominally been uh, vassals of the Siamese kingdom in the past. In that contest between Siam and French Indochina, uh, Siam is defeated rather soundly. They're routed in a conflict in 1893 that happens, which becomes known as the Franco-Siamese crisis. And um, not only do the Siamese lose their claim to the Lao territories on the left bank of the Mekong, but the terms of that agreement between France and, and Siam are arranged in a way that is designed to humiliate the Siamese king, uh, which in this case is Rama V, Jula Longporn, and uh, he's so humiliated and so embarrassed that he loses interest in life uh, for a brief period before recovering. The Going forward, the monarchy has to figure out a way to recover uh, from this incredibly embarrassing moment. And they um, develop a narrative that becomes royalist nationalism, which, which talks about... How, in fact, uh, Siam has survived, how it's, uh, survived by giving away territory. And the way that the monarchy phrases it is essentially we've, we've saved the hand by cutting off a finger. And the Lao territories and, and parts of what becomes Cambodia are that finger that is lost. Now, that exists in, in sort of an ambiguous fashion for several decades. It's, it's rarely mentioned by the monarchy until it's deposed by the People's Party in 1932 and a, a military regime comes to power. And it's really that military regime that begins this process of uh, defining the loss that occurred in 1893. And the person responsible for that is a, an ideologue, a, a member of the military cabinet named Pibun, uh, named Wijit Watakar. He writes a series of articles in the Thai newspapers called "How Thailand Lost its Territories to France," which is a sort of seminal moment in the construction of this concept of lost, lost territories." He not only defines them geographically uh, to be most of what today is Laos and parts of Cambodia, he also defines them chrono- uh, chronologically. So he, he outlines five separate periods in which uh, territory was taken away from Thailand by France, beginning with the uh, uh, secession of territory in uh, 1867, identifying the 1893 Franco-Siamese crisis as the sort of most painful, most injurious moment, and then identifies uh, three other moments uh, up through 1909 in which territory is lost as well. And, that really gives shape really gives focus to the sense of injury that is done to Thailand up until that point. There'd never really been a a discourse to refer to that. What we does of course, is he uh, takes the 20th uh, century conception of the nation state as something with territorial boundaries, as something with uh, a modern conception of sovereignty and then he imposes it back on the past, on the 19th century, to assume that those Lao territories or those Khmer territories were integrated into the Thai nation state uh, in the same way that Bangkok or um, uh, Ubon province or or Chiang Mai provinces has been integrated today. In other words, he's imagining a, a, a nation state, of which of course didn't exist in the 1890s. But he does it so effectively that it becomes an extremely real injury in the minds of Thais in the 1940s. And so one of the interesting effects of this definition of lost territories is that it promotes an extremely emotional, almost visceral response in the minds of of people who learn about it. So that whereas, you know, Siamese in the 1890s, weren't really that interested or affected by what happened during the Franco-Siamese crisis. People in the uh, 1940s feel it almost as though a, a time compression has occurred, as though it happened to them very recently and it becomes an extremely painful, humiliating moment.
1: So what's this national humiliation narrative displacing the royal nationalist narrative? What's the relationship between the two and and why did you choose to concentrate on national humiliation?
0: Well, national humiliation was a way for me to try to understand the limits uh, of this royal nationalist discourse, of this idea that that Siam was never colonized in order to account for all of this anti-colonial rhetoric and all of this uh, all of this attention that the lost territory has received what I, what I argue in the book is that Thai historiography has really two themes, two, two major themes that everyone has to account for in order to create a stable narrative one is this idea that Siam was never colonized um, which is a theme that establishes the state as the hero because the purpose of the state of course is to protect territory but there is a second theme, uh, as I argue, and that theme is lost territories. The lost territories refers to the cost of survival. It refers to the injury that was done to the, this imagined uh, geobody body of, of Siam. It's a theme that sort of suggests that the state is the victim, uh, that it's been injured. And what I argue is that the narratives in Thai history are different combinations of these themes. And they combine them in ways that subordinate or or that um that uh assign one theme a dominant role and a second theme a subordinate role in order to to create that stability. So for example the theme you alluded to was Royalist nationalism. Royalist nationalism as a theme suggests that the king saved the country. Uh, that is Thai history if you are a royalist nationalist. So it assigns the never colonized theme to dominant status. That's the most important theme in that particular narrative uh, because it wants, of course, to elevate the monarchy to provide it with a sense of political legitimacy. And it assigns the theme of lost territories, a subordinate status. It has to exist within the narrative because it serves uh, the purpose of emphasizing the danger that the monarchy and uh, that the nation therefore felt. And in that way, it makes the state seem more heroic and the outcome becomes more glorious. What I argue is that that is only one narrative that has existed in Thai history and that's, it's received the most attention, but there is a second alternative narrative, a, a sort of darker narrative that I refer to as national humiliation. And uh, I take that term. It's been used by other historians uh, such as William Callahan, uh Zheng Wang has used it to refer to China. Um, I think it very effectively summarizes the this, this second narrative in which the two themes are reversed. In the, in the national humiliation narrative that characterizes the 1940s and those military regimes, Lost territory becomes the dominant theme. And the focus of the narrative is to talk about how Thailand has been uh, humiliated by the West, how it has uh, had territory stolen from it, how it has um, uh, it had extraterritoriality imposed upon it. And, and that really becomes the dominant theme of that narrative. Never colonized, on the other hand, is relegated to a subordinate role. The military rulers of the 1930s and 40s never deny that uh, Thailand retained its independence. They only question the nature of that independence. Um, and so, subordinating a, a theme doesn't necessarily mean erasing it or forgetting it. It only means to, to sanitize it in a way that reinforces the, the dominance of the larger theme, which in this case is, is lost territories. What I argue in the book is that royalist nationalism uh, prevails throughout the history of Thailand. It is, it is the most common. It is the most public theme. But that there are certain conditions or certain moments in Thai history, uh, moments of crisis, moments of extreme political pressure, in which the subordinate theme can challenge for dominance, in which, in which those themes invert. And uh, the country embraces a national humiliation narrative or, or discourse. And those moments are sort of outlined in the book. The, the late 1930s, uh, early 1940s, leading up to the, the Franco-Tai conflict, the anti-Catholic campaigns of, of 1942 through 1944, the Pan-Asian discourse uh, that, that explains the Thai-Japanese alliance and, of course, the much more recent controversies over uh, prayer here and the dispute with Cambodia.
1: Well, let's go to those in in turn, but perhaps we can start with Pan-Asianism and then come to the other two after that because I think that will give you an opportunity also to sketch out a little bit more of the the details of this period, Um, what were the characteristics of the military regime and Um, how it's used this national humiliation narrative for its uh, specific uh, political and strategic purposes. Right. The military regime
0: that uh, takes power in Thailand in 1932 deposes the absolute monarchy with the intent, or the stated intent at least, of transforming uh, Thailand into a, a modern democracy. And what the military rulers quickly realize is that the ideals of constitution and democracy and public participation in politics, those are mere shadows of political legitimacy in comparison to the massive cultural capital that the Thai monarchy has. And so as we move from 1932 towards 1938, The military rulers recognize they have to create a a new form of political legitimacy that's going to allow them to stay in power and to compete with the monarchy, but also to undermine the monarchy's influence. And that's really where Lost Territories comes in. That's where national humiliation uh, narratives come in. National humiliation narratives makes the, uh, the purpose of the state not just to preserve Thailand's independence, but really to regain Thailand's independence and to do that, uh, by regaining the lost territories that were lost or that were, that were surrendered in 1893. Only then can Thailand be made uh, whole again and redeem its national honor. Now that 1941 border conflict, uh, eventually gives way to, uh, the relationship between Thailand and Japan. In, at the end of 1941, Japan invades and occupies Thailand. Uh, and it's using Thailand as a pathway to both Singapore in the south and Burma in the west. The prime minister of Thailand at the time is, uh, Field Marshal Pibun Songkram, who's really the central figure in the, uh, not only the Franco-Thai border conflict, but also the uh, World War II era in Thailand. People decides that his only method for survival is to collaborate with the Japanese and to uh, create an alliance between Thailand and Japan, but also with the Axis in general. He then faces a very serious problem, which is how to explain to the people of Thailand, uh, first of all, that the Thailand is not a Japanese colony, that this is a partnership, not an occupation, and more importantly, how Thailand has suddenly uh, created such a dramatic transformation of its foreign policy, which has always been oriented towards British. The Thai are much more pro-British, very interested in in Britain, and, and know very little and have very little interest in Japan. And these pro-British sentiments uh, seem to be a, a, a real problem for uh, people going forward. He uses national humiliation in order to provide solutions to both problems. First of all, it, it offers an explanation for the Thai-Japanese partnership. Uh, the government essentially says to the Thai people, look, the, the Japanese are just like us. They're Asians, they're Buddhist, but most of all, They've been bullied by the West just as we have been. They have experienced the humiliation of extraterritoriality. And even now, the U.S. is uh, uh, bullying them into a war for resources because of its refusal to, to trade with them. So uh, Japan is a, a country that that understands Thailand's problems. They are not conquerors. They are here to uh, free us from Western influence. But it also offers, for people, and it offers a, a sense of continuity between the Franco-Thai conflict and the Pacific War. And people tells the people of Thailand, look, uh, we've just come through a border war, which has uh, allowed us to regain a portion of territories that we lost in 1893. We're trying to drive the French out of mainland Southeast Asia. This war that the Japanese are fighting this is a continuation of that conflict. The Japanese are just trying to push the West out of all of Asia. And by aligning with them, we're going to help that happen. We're going to free uh, uh, Asia from Western imperialist influence. He also believes that Thailand will be able to obtain a privileged position within the co-prosperity sphere that the Japanese are creating. Thailand will be leaders because, like Japan, they've managed to preserve their independence, uh, under a, an age of Western imperialism. But like the colonies, they know what it's like to suffer from, uh, you know, Western piracy, as they refer to it, or, or Western imperialism. And so they try to sort of position themselves in this uh, second tier status they're not as great as japan but of course they're still above their asian neighbors who've who've been completely colonized what i do in in that particular chapter is to try to demonstrate the congruity between national humiliation and pan asian discourse uh to to demonstrate the way that uh, pibun and Wichit Watagan Use this idea of of uh, you know Western uh, exploitation, Western humiliation, to create a space within the co-prosperity for Japan, and I argue that that this in a lot of ways changes the historiography on the war. Uh, a lot of historians in the past have written that Thailand really you know doesn't. Uh, doesn't have a stake in the war one way or the other. That They're just trying to survive, and, and that they succeed very well at that since Thailand doesn't suffer the destruction that, that characterizes the war in the Philippines or in Burma or in other areas. While that's true, um, I point out that you know, survival is really not the ultimate goal of the Thai military elite, that if you look at it through a national humiliation lens, Expansion is the goal of the Thai military elite. They want to regain this imagined uh, Thai empire that they believe existed in the past. They want to make Thailand the preeminent authority in Southeast Asia. Um, And far from being um, uh, upset at the Japanese arrival in Southeast Asia, they see this as a tremendous opportunity for them to fill the void that's going to be left by Western imperialism.
1: And in this period, the expansion was not just to the East, but also um, conceivably, and in fact, for a short period, to the West. Um, Would I say anything about the anti-British component of the national humiliation narrative in that time, uh, consistent with the Japanese program? And uh, you also argue that it failed to get the kind of traction that the anti-French narrative was so successful in obtaining. In yes, when the, when the uh, Thai
0: formulated their declaration of war in 1942, they declared war on the United States and on Great Britain. And the reason that they're given that declaration is that uh, the British have taken territory away from them and also that the British did not help them in 1893 during the Franco-Siamese crisis. There were no help against the uh, French onslaught. And so the Thai really accused the British of betraying them then. And Pibun uh, often makes speeches and writes that, you know, the British are not our friends. The British do not want to help us during this crisis. They simply want to use us as a shield to protect Singapore and Burma. Now, you're you're absolutely right that the Thai do take uh, territory uh, from what is British Malaya at the time, and also the Shan states in Burma. Those temporarily become part of this uh, growing greater Thailand under Japanese supervision. When I went to the uh, National Museum in Thailand and looked at the display they have that refers to the lost territories, I noticed that these territories... Uh, uh, in Malaya and in the Shan states are conspicuously absent from that map. They're not identified by Wichit at the time as being lost territories. They're not mentioned in in current uh, uh, depictions, oftentimes in museums, as lost territories. I even asked the curator why that was when I was there. And she said, well, they're not, those territories were not uh, inhabited by people that we consider to be Thai. The the people down in the south those were Malays. The people in the in the uh, in Burma those were Shans. So you know they were never really part of that discourse. That is not what the people in the nineteen in forties thought. That's not that's not what the government wrote at the time. But but as you mentioned, it, it's much more difficult for the British to mobilize this uh, intense animosity, this this emotion, this this visceral reaction against the British. And I argue really that that's because even though uh, Thailand is forced to cede territory to Britain, it's done so through treaties and that Britain treated Siam much more like a, an equal, uh, much more like a peer and that everything was done through legality and, and lawful treaties. Whereas France tended to use a much more heavy handed approach and, and, uh, took territories at gunpoint and also in ways that were designed to embarrass and humiliate the Thai. You add to that the fact that British culture was extremely popular in Thailand by the 1930s. The the Thai liked to play tennis. They liked horse racing. They were enamored of the royal family. Uh, It was just much more difficult for this uh, military regime to get people to think of the British as their enemies. Um, And that, that uh, national humiliation discourse that they tried to use on, on the British never really gained the same type of traction that it did with the French.
1: What did the, uh Thai leadership do at the end of the war when they were forced to withdraw from those allegedly lost territories that, occupied, that they had occupied? How did the national humiliation narrative deal with the defeat of the Japanese and with um, the subsequent the consequences for Thailand? Well, in
0: 1941, uh, after, the, uh, after the Franco-Thai border dispute, the treaty that's signed between uh, French Indochina and and Thailand cedes four provinces from French Indochina to Thailand, and those become integrated parts of the Thai nation state. When Japan loses the war, of course, uh, the Allies return to Southeast Asia, and all of a sudden these provinces that were such a tremendous boon in 1941 that, that were maybe the greatest moment in, in the history, the foreign policy history of Thailand, all of a sudden these become an enormous liability because Thailand is uh, attempting to reenter the international community, which is now once again dominated by these old Western imperialist foes that it's now spent, you know, four years uh, uh, demonizing. Even though the, the, The military regime of the war is now gone and Thailand is governed by a much more uh, pro-Western, pro-democratic government led by Bridi Banamyung. There's an enormous reluctance to give back these four provinces to French and China. Um, And the new government finds itself in a very difficult position. They want to reintegrate themselves into the international community. They want to redeem themselves for their wartime record. And the symbol of receiving that international acceptance, as it is for most uh, countries at this time, is membership in the newly formed United Nations. When Thailand applies for membership in 1946, their application is blocked by the French, a member of the Security Council. And the French essentially tell them, uh, you will not gain entry into the United Nations until you've returned those four provinces back to French Indochina. So there's an extremely difficult moment for the uh, Thais, and they hold this uh, debate in the National Assembly over what's to do. Uh, whether to hold on to these provinces and to risk war, or whether to give them back and to once again, restart this cycle of territorial loss and humiliation. And there are are a a large number of members of the assembly who say, no, we should risk war. The people who live live in these territories are Thai. Uh, To abandon them to the French would be to uh, condemn them to slavery. I mean, there's all sorts of powerful uh, rhetoric that's going on. In the end, the Thai decide that, That their situation is not such that they can risk war. And they do uh, return those territories back to France in order to secure membership in the UN. Now, what does this mean for national humiliation discourse? Well, national humiliation has really been a liability since about 1944 because when the Japanese, when the war looks like it's going bad for the Japanese, the Pibun government uh, resigns. And you have a much more pro-allied government that uh, replaces it in Thailand. They don't want anything to do with the discussion of lost territories. They don't want anything to do with national humiliation. They don't want to antagonize the allies. And so what I argue is that, you know, this is one of those moments when the historical themes reinvert. And never colonized takes the dominant position again, and lost territory has to be relegated to subordinate status, because only royalist nationalism is going to allow Thailand to uh, assume its former position in the international community. And this then changes the historiography on the war. If you're going to create a narrative about never colonized, you can't admit that uh that Thailand was occupied during the war. And so instead of occupying force, the Japanese become a guest army. Uh, and so this creates all this contra- all these contradictions within the historiography. If the Japanese were a guest army, then that means that the Thai regime was complicit in what happened in Southeast Asia. If they were an occupying force, then that means that Thailand was not independent for those four years. But instead, Thai historians try to combine those themes in ways that, where they can have it both ways. They can be both uh, independent and not responsible for what was done during the war. So, uh, you know, my discussion of, of national humiliation and, and Pan-Asianism is an attempt to
1: sort of unravel those contradictions. Let's turn to national humiliation and anti-Catholicism because this is a chapter of the book that I personally found really compelling and a chapter that offers new and fascinating insights into the modern history of Thailand, for which you can be really congratulated. Uh can you please talk us through some of the key contents of that chapter and again relate anti-Catholicism to the narrative that's the overarching theme of the book? hmm well, I have to start by um,
0: crediting uh, a graduate student at the Julalongkorn University who I met in the National Archives uh, while I was there and when I told him uh, the topic that I was working on the franco Thai border conflict and anti imperialist rhetoric and, and uh, discourses. He said to me, you know, you should really look into what happened to Thai Catholics during that period because there were all sorts of episodes of violence and arrests and imprisonment and closure of churches. And, of course, I was absolutely stunned. I'd I'd never read or heard anything about that happening before, and I assumed that, you know, most people hadn't either. And so when I began looking into the... uh, uh, different archives at the Assumption Cathedral and, and talking with uh, uh, people who knew a little about this. I was, I was absolutely uh, stunned by what I found. What I learned was that really following the Franco-Thai border conflict from 1942 into 1944, that the Thai government had it engaged in an attempt to uh, eliminate Catholicism from uh, certain parts of Thailand uh, with a goal of eliminating from all of Thailand. And their reasoning for this, for doing this, really taps into this uh, national humiliation discourse and really represents how Thai attitudes towards the West are, are so conflicted, so ambiguous. What What I learned is that the the Thai state and the Catholic Church had a very tense relationship in the 19th century. Um, there was, in fact, a church a state confrontation that that happens during the reign of Jula Rama V, when um, missionaries are uh, sort of inserting themselves into the northeastern regions of Thailand. Uh, and they are working in the northeast, particularly in Udon Province, in Ubon Province, Segunakorn, Nakhon Phanom, and these uh, missionaries who are French are working with a lot of uh, minority groups, with Vietnamese, with Lao, and as they as they uh, complete their work of, of conversion and, and of proselytization. They're doing so in, in ways that challenge uh, state authority. So one of, the, one of the implications of the 1893 border uh, uh, Franco-Siamese crisis is the principle of extraterritoriality. Foreigners in Thailand are immune from prosecution in, in Siamese courts. And so these uh, French priests that are teaching in the Northeast uh, are not subject to French law. And worse than that, the French have extended something known as protege status, which means that they can uh, confer a, a type of diplomatic immunity to people in French Indochina or, or Lao or Vietnamese uh, subjects, which then makes them immune from, from uh Siamese prosecution or Siamese law. And what Julie Belcourt is afraid of in the, in the 1880s and 1890s is that these French priests in the Northeast are converting people to Catholicism and at the same time extending them protege status. Version means both a withdrawal from Buddhism and an exemption of the requirements of Siamese law. So for example, the nobles are uh, petitioning Jules and saying, look, these people that formerly were, were a subject to corvee labor, now they're made French protégés, and we can't make any demands on them uh, anymore. So Jules believes that these French missionaries are really agents of the French uh, Indochina state. He hesitates to confront them, out of fear of colonial retaliation i mean he's very familiar with the way that the french have used religious freedom as a pretext for intervention in vietnam so you have this long standing uh uneasy relationship between french catholicism as it exists upcountry and the demands of the thai state by the 1930s when uh Pibun Songkram is now prime minister, and you have a, a military regime in, in control in Thailand. That uh, legacy of uh, church state interaction gets grafted into this narrative of how the West has embarrassed, and humiliated, and, and subverted uh, the Thai government and Thai law. And so Pibun sees. The Franco-Tai border conflict and this war with France and this Japanese uh, efforts to liberate Asia from Western imperialist influence, he sees this as an opportunity both for external expansion and for internal purification, and that's really what his contest with Catholicism is about: uh, driving out any remnants any legacy of Western imperialist any memory of how Thailand has been uh, uh, defied or humiliated by the West out out of the country so so he embarks on what becomes the anti-catholic campaign and it really has two parts the Thai government works to define Catholics as non Thai and it does this both by saying well they've abandoned Buddhism which is the uh, an essential part of their Thainess, But also he points out that most converts in the Northeast are actually not Thai at all. They're, they're Vietnamese, they're Lao, there are Khmer converts as well. And so he says, look, if you're Catholic, you're not Thai, you don't belong here. And then following that, once, once that is established, once that becomes the accepted viewpoint among the civil bureaucracy and among most of the uh, elite within Thailand, he puts in place a campaign to eliminate the institution of Catholicism uh, beginning in the Northeast. So immediately, as soon as the border conflict starts, French priests are all rounded up and deported so that the congregations of Catholics in the Northeast are deprived of their leadership. He sends police into the Northeast that... uh, close down cathedrals and confiscate Catholic schools and take possession of Catholic dormitories and Catholic homes and Catholic uh, property. It's all shut down. Catholic meetings are banned. Uh, Catholics cannot meet with uh, any clergy at all, cannot engage in in worship services uh, in the Northeast from 1942 to 1944. And there are even several examples of violence. Uh, churches are burned down. In, uh, clergy are arrested. Catholics who refuse to convert back to Buddhism are arrested. Members of the bureaucracy who uh, continue to practice Catholicism are fired for their jobs. And uh, there are examples uh, in Korat, uh, in Nukon um, Ratsasimhaa, of a a Catholic priest, a Thai Catholic priest, who's arrested in prison and dies in prison of tuberculosis. And he's, of course, uh, been recognized in Thailand as a Catholic martyr. In uh, Phnom province, there is a memorial memorial to the seven martyrs, individuals who Catholics believe were uh, martyred by Thai police because of their refusal to abandon their faith. Um, all of this took place in an environment, uh, in a wartime environment in which the Japanese occupation of Southeast Asia provides the perfect atmosphere for P. Boon to essentially uh, uh, settle old scores with Western imperialism. And what he argues essentially is that the Catholic Church, along with extraterritoriality, along with the last territories, is a vestige of Western colonial intervention in Thailand. It is a part of that very painful uh, injury that was done to Thai national honor. And therefore, uh, just as you 1940-41 know, becomes the moment to redeem Thailand by regaining these lost territories, by, by recovering parts of Thailand that have been occupied by the French for so long – it's also uh, a an opportunity to sort of cut out the cancer of the of the body politic. You know, in, in one um, in one document that I read, there's a a civic official who refers to Catholicism like a like a fungus that affects a mango tree. If you don't cut it out, the mango tree dies. And uh, if if you don't get rid of Catholicism, they argue, then you know the state. The
1: Thai state will die. Shane, uh, listeners who are interested to Mm -hmm. learn more about the Prewihia or and temple conflict on the border of Cambodia, I think you're going to have to take a look at the book themselves because I'd like to jump and ask you briefly about sources. Uh, One of the really impressive features of the book, and especially the material on anti Catholicism, Mm -hmm. but uh, across the text as a whole is your, your use of source materials, uh, obtaining of sources that must have required both skill and tenacity on your part simply to access them, to say nothing of the uh, reading methods and techniques that you adopt in writing about them. So could you just briefly give some sense of what materials you drew on for the purpose of writing this book and perhaps any challenges you encountered? You've already alluded to the um, archives at the cathedral, but I'm sure there's much more to say. Mm
0: -hmm. well I I wasn't as successful in attaining sources as I would have hoped one of the things that I really wanted to write on uh, for this book and and perhaps it will become part of a future project was uh, what's considered now to be the French occupation of Gentapuri and Drat provinces uh, between 1902 or sorry between 1893 and 1907 and that's part of the legacy of the the Franco-Siamese crisis um Julalongkorn allows the French to occupy those areas in order to save uh, other parts of Thailand they're eventually restored to Siam in in uh, 1907 and to this day the the province of Trat celebrates its return as Trat Independence Day so there's there's a powerful memory of um of national humiliation and, and uh, of loss there that I wasn't able to write about because I couldn't get permission to look at the documentation regarding the transfer of those particular areas and the, for example, the Thai civic officials that were imprisoned by the French in Jantaburi uh, during that period. Um, most of the materials that I used for this particular book came from uh, documents in the Ministry of Interior, and uh, I was even successful in, in finding some government documents that that directly reference the anti-Catholic campaign, which I was very surprised to find because uh, that was something that, that the Thai government was careful about, you know, keeping a, a paper trail to a minimum on. Uh, the most important. Documents for the anti-Catholic campaign, of course, came from the library at the printing press at Assumption Cathedral. This also was not uh, difficult or not uh, easy to obtain access to, and I'm very grateful to the patrons of the of the uh, university for allowing me access. Um, what I found is that those records have not really entered into the uh, public discourse about this period. They're not part of the collective memory of uh, the World War II period or the Franco-Thai conflict or, or the Catholic experience in Thailand. And and one reason for that is that those records are very carefully guarded. The, the, the Catholic Church really doesn't want people having access to them. Um, and one of the questions that I have have pondered uh, in the writing of this book is is why is that? Why are these sources so carefully guarded? I think for two reasons. Well, number one is that the Thai um, the official histori- historiography in Thailand really has no interest in uncovering uh, a moment in Thai history that is so synonymous with religious intolerance and you know that really upends the um conventional thinking on thailand was which uh the thais generally like to promote which is that it's a very religiously tolerant you know every religion teaches you to be good that is what thais will tell you when you when you talk about religion in thailand and and this is is a very difficult period to reconcile with that idea but the other idea is that Catholics themselves aren't very forthcoming about telling their story and about um, uh, you know writing narratives that 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 publicize what happened uh, in the Northeast during the 1940s, and I think that's because they are uh, they have worked for so many decades to achieve this status as being more mainstream and being patriotic and being loyal Thai citizens, uh, that they are not anxious to bring up um, moments in their own past, their own memories that, that, that sort of place them outside of the mainstream and that, that illustrate a moment when they were at, at conflict with the Thai state. And so those stories, those memories, those, those discussions are, are held within the Catholic community and they're commemorated in different ways, but they're not allowed to, to, or they're not encouraged to enter the the public sphere in ways that would reshape this uh, collective memory about religion and about wartime activity.
1: For people who follow current affairs in Thailand, Mm -hmm. a lot of this will sound awfully familiar uh, with irredentism, uh, temple conflicts, the narrative of outside threats, the obsession with the prestige of the monarchy, the placing of the military as savior of the nation. How did events in Thailand today influence your thinking about the research and writing of the last territories? Well, it,
0: I, I think that it's, it's a good illustration of, of uh, a couple of things. The first is, the idea that national humiliation as a discourse uh, can uh, disappear entirely. It can lay dormant for decades and, and you'll see very, you know, hardly a reference to it for two, three, four decades. And then all of a sudden under certain correct, uh, under certain ideal circumstances during political crisis, it will reemerge again in ways that shape the political discourse and shape the narrative over what's happening in Thailand. Um, one of the things that I say about national uh, humiliation discourse in the book is that its purpose, when, when people in, and Weijit and and this military regime really gave birth to this discourse, what they wanted was a narrative that would bond citizens strongly to the state that would take the royal shame of the 1893 Franco-Siamese crisis and convert it into a national agony. And that was always really fascinating to me. Why, why the, uh, the Franco-Siamese crisis would be so painful to people in the 1940s when people in the 1890s, when the event had actually happened, weren't that concerned by it. And the way that this happens in many ways is by... Identifying this state as victim mentality, right? And that becomes the basis of Thai identity in a lot of ways. The state has been humiliated. The state is the victim. We have to unite under the leadership of the state. if we don't, just look to our history to see all sorts of things that can happen uh, that can occur if we are divided. So for example, you know going back to 2006. The um, People's Alliance for Democracy and the the Yellow Shirt Movement and the furor over the Samut government's uh, signing of uh, the treaty with Cambodia and giving World Heritage status over Preah Vihir to Cambodia. That was an event that really triggered the reemergence of this national humiliation discourse and if you pay attention to what the pad was saying during that period if you pay attention to the way that they uh that they formulated their discourse it was uh, a very ingenious reformulation of national humiliation discourse to to lose preah vihear would be to surrender territory to cambodia which would be uh, a violation of the duty of the state it means that the state does not have political legitimacy, um, and it means that, of course, we need to replace the leadership in order to provide uh, strong leadership. It also means that if you are a citizen who questions this idea of thianess, who who uh, dares to... Um, Put forward a, a contradictory assertion about what's happening, or to to challenge the state's authority, then you are uh, accused of selling the nation, as as uh, Tuxen was accused, and as people who questioned the validity of Thailand's claim over here in two thousand six. This was the accusation that they faced. Um, if you're not all in on preserving Thailand's boundaries, if you're not Uh, if you're not unified under the leadership of of people who want to preserve Thailand's boundaries, then you are selling the nation. You're guilty of promoting the same type of dissension and the same type of uh, disunity that has allowed Western imperialists to take advantage of Thailand in the past. And so what it does is it completely shuts off all uh ability to question and to reason and to to have a debate about national security or about Thai identity or or many other or especially about the monarchy or any other aspect of thai politics that uh the regime deems to be out of bounds shane this
1: is a a really a great book, and I'm keen to learn uh, coming out of this book what you're working on now and what we can look forward to from you in the future.
0: Well, uh, the, product, the, the uh, project that I'm, I'm trying to get off the ground right now is really uh, more a series of questions than answers. I'm beginning with an incident that happened in 1972 in which a uh, group of Mormon missionaries visited the uh, ruins of the ancient city of Sukhothai in Thailand, which within royal nationalist historiography, that is the cradle of Thai civilization. It is the birthplace of Thailand. These missionaries uh, photographed themselves sitting on top of the Buddha, sitting on its head, had the photos developed. And when they were, uh, developed, the workers at the photo shop were so incensed by what they saw that they sent the negatives down to Bangkok to newspapers. And they were published in Siam Rat newspaper uh, and triggered a national outrage that uh, led to the arrest and imprisonment of these missionaries for six months. Now, that incident has also opened up all sorts of interesting questions to me Um, for me. I'm interested not so much in the event itself, but in the debate that it opened up. Newspapers were full of uh, discussion about all sorts of things, about the way that Christianity was threatening to uh, undermine Buddhism. This was 1972, so this was sort of at the tail end of the American presence in Thailand during the Vietnam era. And so this image of this uh, American teenager sitting on the head of a Sukhothai Buddha became a sort of representative icon of Thai political subservience to the United States and a questioning of what, you know, whether or not the United States respected Thailand and, and whether or not, uh, uh, Thailand has benefited from this relationship, and 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 what the impending uh, departure was going to mean. I'm also interested in, and and I've been looking at ways that the Thai state has attempted to establish a protocol for the treatment of Buddhist imagery, and not just in uh, Thailand itself, but also abroad. Um, those of your listeners who are paying attention to uh, what the uh, Thai state has been doing in an organization called KnowingBuddha.org, those groups are interested in uh, making accusations against businesses or corporations or uh, entities that use the Buddha in ways that they feel are incorrect, and it demands apologies from them, and it demands that they stop uh, Displaying Buddhist imagery that way. And that for me is a very, very fascinating attempt by the Thai state to uh, extend its authority beyond its own national boundaries and also to expand its own influence within the international community by uh, establishing itself as a a patron, an international patron of Buddhism. And uh, it does so by using a victimization narrative, which I think is very um, uh, reminiscent of of this national humiliation discourse that I've been talking about. And so I've been trying to
1: piece together those connections. That does sound like a great follow-up project, and I certainly look forward to reading more in the coming days, weeks, and years as you get into it. Um, so, Shane Strake, and I thank you very much for joining us today to talk about the lost territories, Thailand's history of national humiliation. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Nick. It was a pleasure, likewise. And thanks to everyone for listening. And I look forward to having you join me again for another meeting with an author on new books in Southeast Asian studies. And if you have time, to check out all the other great network channels like New Books in History, where this interview will be cross-posted. Hey, I got to to hey,
0: thank God so get the turn vote.